and welcome to this episode of the Cybersecurity Podcast from PwC UK. Today, we're looking at the changing role of the Chief Information Security Officer, or as it's typically known, the CISO. I'm excited to be joined by two guests with a wealth of experience on this topic, Kevin Storley, CISO for PwC UK, and Phil Venables, CISO for Google Cloud. Kevin, Phil, it's great to have you in our virtual studio. Thanks, Thanks. it's great to be here. Before we dive into our discussion, I understand that a CISO's responsibilities can vary across organizations. For our listeners, can you tell us what the role of the CISO is and what this role entails? Kevin, it would be great to hear your thoughts first. Thanks, Abby. Uh, if I could summarize it, I would say that the CISO is the trusted advisor. Uh, and what that means is he's looking at security from a risk perspective. So he plays a little bit from a chief risk officer role. Uh, he's also playing it from a technical perspective. So how he responds to incidents, how he looks at threat intelligence, how he implements technology within an organization. Uh, but he's also, a, a, I equate to chief learning. So how do you educate the organization on the threats, uh, the pitfalls, uh, what not to do, how to be secure, uh, but also driving the change. So he also becomes a change officer in a lot of ways uh, because uh, security is always ever evolving and, and you need to constantly drive change uh, throughout the organization. But ultimately to me, it, it really, he, he or she becomes a trusted advisor to the uh, executive board. Yeah, and just just building on that, I think that's right. I think that the other thing as well, and um, uh, and and you kind of hit this in the question as well, that the the role does shift depending on the organization you're in and the industry you're in as to whether you're a, 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 a focused on product security versus the protection of the assets of the of the corporation. It also varies across sector depending whether you're in. Um, government, finance, energy, healthcare, telecoms, there's all sorts of different nuances to the role. I think increasingly as well, the CISOs uh, are picking up more than just classic information and cybersecurity, and they, they tend to now also include many other risks that they oversee, um, including many other technology risks. Um, but I think the uh, I think the, the, the main responsibility of the CISO, as, as Kevin says, is, is, is really to be a a trusted advisor and the the focal point for their information protection program for the organization. Thank you both for summarizing. We often talk about the role of the CISO in an abstract way, so it's great to hear your perspectives. So a good place to start a discussion would be to hear a bit more about yourselves. Over the course of your careers, how have you both seen your role change? Phil, why don't I come to you first? Yeah, so I, I like a, a lot of people have should we say my generation a little bit kind of uh, uh, you know having been around for a number of decades didn't necessarily start and go into kind of a CISO career track so you know a lot of us have come through engineering and uh, and related backgrounds and uh, and so I, I I had my first CISO role 25 plus years ago um, when it was mainly focused purely on IT security and very engineering centric uh, and certainly over the years, I've seen my role change quite significantly to include more uh, engagement with business units on matters of business risk and strategic risk for, for the company. And also, as I kind of mentioned in the the, um, the review of what CISO does, also included a lot of other different types of operating and technology risk. And so I think the, the role's changed for a lot of people over the years to be just become much a, a much broader part of how the 
overall enterprise manages risk, not just how the technology risks are managed? Yeah, and from my perspective, um, I entered security through more professional services. So a lot from a, originally from a pen test perspective, um, then really dived into identity access management uh, and specifically around the implementation and deployments of those technologies, uh, and then shifted into uh, a CISO role. And it has, Bill has said, seen the changes as the, the CISO role had traditionally been within IT and how it shifted to become more, well, more mission critical. Um, and and sh uh, changing to re uh, reporting to the COO or potentially the CFOs in certain organizations and now even to the CEO directly. Uh, but I also see the evolution and the change um, combining the CISO role with a broader technology role. So for like myself, you, uh, I play the PwC UK CISO role, uh, but I also have a global CTO role. And, and I do see that there will be more changes to this hybrid uh, kind of role going forward. Thanks. It's really interesting to hear how both of your careers in cybersecurity and, of course, roles as CISOs have been quite different. We've discussed in earlier episodes of this podcast what organizations are doing in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, and our own research has shown that they are focusing on business resilience and strategy. So it sounds like CISOs are going to need to be more involved in these conversations moving forwards. As the role of the CISO evolves, how do you think they can find a balance between shutting down security risks, which has been their focus historically, and enabling the organization to achieve its goals and, of course, deliver these commercial benefits? Yeah, I can, uh, I, I can, I can kick off on that. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I think many chief information security officers, you know, especially in the past few years, have also added uh, business resilience to their kind of put their, their remit and the, the portfolio that they cover. And I think that's kind of a healthy thing because there, there's a lot of trade-offs to be made in many cases between resilience and security. And so I think having the, the CISO drive resilience as part of broader organizational preparedness. And certainly, again, uh, in organizations that had to do a lot of work to transition into more flexible and remote working during covid required a huge amount of support from the CISO to make sure that they were doing that in a secure way, um, whether it's promulgating more depth of remote access or more video or more digitization of business processes to interact um, uh, electronically with customers rather than kind of physical presence. I think the other thing as well is before and through that, it's been very clear the, the role of the CISO and the wider team in delivering these adjacent business benefits of, of helping the business um, and in fact the, the entire enterprise digitize to enable them to still connect electronically with the supply chain with customers to um, to, to, to reduce that dependency on physical presence. And I, and I think as you look back over the past year um, and all the years before that in preparing, you, you, you see many successful security teams who've really added a lot of value to their enterprises to help them transition through the past year. It's been uh, it's been it's been great to see a lot of CISOs really come to the fore during this time. I would I would echo exactly what Phil said. Is I think the uh, the pandemic had accelerated the digitization of the processes and the businesses, and as such, you're seeing the CISO become uh, more at the forefront and really moving into that front office space and embedding security by design in everything that they do. And I, I, I think it's important because you shouldn't really differentiate the front office and back office anymore. And, and the CISO needs to have oversight in both areas, because at the end of the day, if something happens in either back office or front office, 
it's all brand damaging. And so it's great to see how uh, the pandemic actually accelerated the importance of the role of the CISA. And circling back to how the CISA role is becoming elevated within organizations, do you think CISA is always ready for the, the step up in responsibility that comes with this increased profile? I, I think in many cases they are because I, I think either CISOs have been hired at an executive level. So certainly now when you when you see an organization either develop and promote from within or hire from the outside, they're hiring at an elevated executive level. And so those those candidates are being assessed and often being interviewed by the CEO, the CFO and key board members. Uh, as as well as all of the risk and technology teams, so I think they're they're being prepared and, and and assessed for that. I think for a lot of other CISOs that have grown up through the organisation progressively over many years, um, I think they've they sometimes have had to fend for themselves, and it's been kind of force of personality that they've got their seat at the uh, at the so called executive table, um, and uh, or they've got that through just long term adding value. To the businesses that, that that they support, but I think now there's there's no question that uh, you know for most major corporations and especially for critical infrastructure industries, it's it's unquestionable that the the CISO is is not just kind of in a C-suite in name; it's actually in their action and their positioning the organization as well, which I think is uh, is again very very healthy for organizations. Yeah, and, and, and absolutely, as the role, a role becomes more critical, you're seeing the, the evolution and, and the, uh, the leadership filling in and, and the talent that's filling into the CISO role. Uh, I would say, and I read this a while back, but one of the, the studies that I read was uh, grit is one of the greatest indicators of success. And I think to be successful in the CISO role as it gets elevated, um, the individual is going to have to show tremendous grit because at the, at the end of the day, security is a natural friction to the agility of the organization and, and how they're wanting to accomplish their goals. And so again, there's gonna be a lot of adversity um, as part of this process and what they have to face. And, and again, the, the CISO just has to demonstrate the grit to go along with it. Just to delve deeper into skills briefly, which Phil is an area you mentioned in your last response. Can I ask you both, when you're hiring, what do you both look for? especially as you currently work for very different organizations? And what types of skills do you think CISOs need to recruit for their teams over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a base level of technical skills required. So I think, it's, I think it's long since gone where the CISO is, is a purely technical role. Um, as we've talked about in some of the previous questions, uh, the CISO is as much a business leader as a uh, as a technical leader, but having said that, many of the the issues and many of the challenges and many of the risk mitigants are, are technical in nature, especially as all businesses have become digital businesses, and and so there is a base level of of technical expertise and security expertise that I think CISOs absolutely need to have, uh, but beyond that, the real skills that differentiate security talent and risk management talent at all levels, not just the CISO, is, is, is an ability to be curious, to have a kind of an innate curiosity, to look around corners, to spot the failure modes of things, to look for the, the pressure points in organizations. And again, not just technically, but 
process and uh, and cultural. Um, it's you know as, as Kevin was saying, it's it's that kind of grit and persistence that, that sometimes major organizational change and implementing new types of control require a degree of persuasion and persistence that you don't always need in other roles and that's uh, that that again is is important um the, the the other one is is to also um look for kind of low ego um this is one of those things where at some level it's tempting to have a um a, you know a, a a high ego you know highly opinionated person in the role but at some level the most important part of the role is for them to have a low ego be highly collaborative to you know, in many cases, let some of the other leaders in the organization take the credit for a lot of the improvements because that's improvements in their business, in their area. And so that that degree of the ability to partner and share the credit for things as well as kind of sharing the work is is key. And then, and then the final thing I would say is, in many cases, the, you're not going to find the perfect candidate for every role. And so it's important to actually recognize that in many cases you have to hire people and train them and develop them to fill in the gaps. But what you're really looking for is their trajectory and their ability to do the role as it evolves, not necessarily to fit 100% of the criteria of the role as it stands. Because I think if you do that, you end up never getting anybody. And often I think we all look back in our careers and look at the people we've hired and developed that some of our best people in some of our most critical roles weren't necessarily the ideal person for that role on paper, but we recognized their innate skills, trained and developed them, and they became world-class in that particular area because you recognize their trajectory. I, I see eye to eye with Bill on exactly the, his response. Um, I, I, when I was thinking through this, we typically, because there is a tremendous skill shortage right now in the cybersecurity market, and uh, you can't always get the best technical skill sets or the best risk skill sets that are out there. Um, so we really kind of fall upon, uh, I call it the cash model, knowledge, attitude, skills, and habits. And kind of going back to what Phil was saying is that we always want somebody that can come in, as, as he said, curious, always learning, can pick things up quickly, demonstrate great judgment, is disciplined, can fit into the culture, doesn't have the, uh, the huge ego. Um, and we can always teach knowledge and give them the knowledge and, and give them the right skill sets. Uh, but that's, that's how we've approached it too, is we want the right individual that can grow with us, that can learn. Um, and, but at the end of the day, be accountable and, and being able to pick things up quickly and become a leader. And, and that's what we look for as well. Yeah, and the interesting thing about this I've, I've found is that sometimes your best security people are already in your organization in another part of the IT or business risk groups. And and, uh, and certainly over the many roles I've had over the years, some of the best security people we've pulled out of application development teams or infrastructure teams, some of the best risk analysts we've pulled out of business risk teams and then cross-trained into InfoSec, tech risk and cyber and um, and again, because they they had the innate skills. The other thing I, I, I've found useful as well, and I uh, I won't mention the name of the product, but it's a uh, a a security training company that that takes a very kind of gamified virtual lab approach to training. And uh, you know, in one of my prior organisations, we uh, 
we we essentially deployed this training uh, uh, you know simulated lab environment across all of the technology organization and and often the people that were high on the leaderboards of these you know cybersecurity games were people from from the wider technology organization not actually in all cases the uh, the information security team and so that that turned out to be a great recruiting ground for pulling people off the leaderboards and transitioning them from tech into the infosec team so again re- recognizing across the board that in most of our organizations even if we're short of talent in the infosec team we've probably got a lot of innate talent in all of the other teams you just got to find them so it's clear that cisos are really thinking about what skills and training they'll need to support them but of course risk continues to be on their more minds we know that risks linked to the cloud for example have been a consistent area of focus over the last few years Phil, it would be great to hear your thoughts on this. As more organizations move to the cloud, as, as we know, this is often a major part of a security transformation. What risks do they need to be aware of? Well, I, th- I think it's it's becoming the case now where I think as all of the cloud providers, uh, you know, especially the, the the hyperscale cloud providers like like us and, uh, and 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 Amazon and Microsoft and a few others have really gone past that kind of economy of scale now where they're of such a scale that the cloud providers are able to embed a level of security and resilience in the cloud that very very few if any organizations now can sustain and so there's a much higher level of default security controls whether it's encryption whether it's trusted hardware massive levels of resilience massive levels of of network connectivity the ability to implement multiple different resiliency models so as a result of all this i think a lot of organizations are starting to see cloud as less of a risk in and of itself and more actually as a risk mitigant it's their means to increase security and resilience compared to what they've traditionally built on premise um and that's not because they didn't want to build those higher levels of default controls like encryption everywhere um on premise it's just that the on premise legacy technologies don't necessarily have the capability to do that so i think a lot of organizations now are seeing cloud as an opportunity to modernize their technology and in doing so use a use a, a higher level of security default but having said that you know we all see the headlines where um customers in various industries misconfigure their environment and leave um storage buckets exposed and so on and and i think one of the things the cloud providers and this is something we've we've talked about as the transition from shared responsibility to shared fate i think the cloud providers are increasingly seeing it as uh, an increased role for them to reach across that line of shared responsibility and uh, and be much more actively supporting of customers and raising the bar on secure defaults for example you know we 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 default encrypting everything we default various different lockdowns so it becomes harder and harder for customers to uh, to misconfigure things but it's certainly always a uh, um as you transition to the cloud you've got to establish the right governance the right standards to do that and again the the way we think about this is we often talk about defense in depth from attacks it's also really important to think about defense in depth from configuration errors and a lot of the controls and the support we give to customers are 
are in, in the recognition of that. But on, on balance, I think now people are recognizing that the move to the cloud is not just an opportunity to digitally transform their businesses. It's an opportunity to step function, increase their security and resilience. Yeah, cloud is definitely becoming one, going back to the agility and resiliency that, that Phil was talking about. A, a lot of organizations, especially as we've gone through the pandemic, are, are moving infrastructure and applications to the cloud. Um, that's why we saw a lot of the growth and with huge cloud providers such as GCP and AWS and, and Azure. Um, from a security perspective, I think I would summarize it as two major things. Right? I think visibility and control. Um, and and the, the problem with visibility is that because cloud is so accessible, anybody with a credit card can basically go create a subscription and 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 develop and deploy assets into a cloud um, and so we we don't always have that visibility and i think that's one of the biggest struggles that we have to work against and then the control aspects of it uh, most likely you're going to go into a public cloud environment and how do you actually control the data that's in there how uh, going back to what phil was saying as well ensuring that the proper controls and configurations and settings are in place um, but demonstrating the consistent control across such a broad cloud estate um, is something that's going to be uh, of top of mind for many CISOs going forward and staying with risk we also know how the supply chain can also be a source of concern for CISOs President Joe Biden has recently announced an executive order on improving America's cybersecurity, which includes strengthening the software supply chain, which will likely have global ramifications. And as CISOs will need to respond to this, what steps can they take to ensure that their software is secure? Well, I think we've got to split software security into, into, into two things. Um, first, exactly as you described, the a focus on the the software supply chain of what external components from vendors or from open source packages come into your software and making sure that has um, integrity and the right provenance and you understand where that where that comes from. And then secondly, it's the, the software security program that looks to make sure the software you're constructing is, is as free from vulnerabilities as you, as you can possibly make it. Um, I think those, programs of risk management around software are obviously highly interconnected, but often the, the, the processes and the tooling to, to address them are, are, can, can sometimes be different. The, I think the, the other thing within the software supply chain is it's, it's really important to have a framework for, for thinking about this. And so I'll give, I'll give an example. So there's, there's something we um, at Google uh, publicized recently called SALSA, S-L-S-A. So this stands for supply chain levels for software artifacts. So if, if, uh, if the listeners search for SLSA uh, on GitHub, uh, we published an open source framework for, uh, that's based on our internal experience at, at Google of how to manage software supply chain risk over, over many years. And that gives people a structured framework. Again, it's open source so people can take it, adapt it. Uh, of how to think about mapping the software supply chain and looking at the controls that are required at each step. And ultimately, you really want to have knowledge of where the software came from. Um, you want to have a, a, a so-called hermetic and secure build environment so that um, you have confidence that the software is being built, is built purely from what you input into it in terms of source code. And then the output of that results in signed 
artifacts that your runtime environment will only run uh, approved and authentic software that comes out of your secure build environment. One of the things you see across the industry is, is many groups and companies proposing solutions to resolve software supply chain risk. I think everybody needs to be careful to watch out for solutions that just address one part of that whole stream of controls that are necessary. And so one of the reasons we, we, we published this work was, um, again, it's open source based on our experience. It's, uh, it, it's not aligned to a particular product, but we published that so people kind of have a resource to really think about this problem end to end and not necessarily fall into the trap of only implementing one part of the control framework that's necessary to mitigate software supply chain risk. Yeah, and I would add that um, this should be looked at in various different ways. Number one, with the development of software, as Bill had touched upon, we're just recognizing what tools are being used for development, but also very important where the actual code is being stored, how many different code repositories that you might have and, and securing those repositories as well. Uh, I would say number two is, how do you embed secure development, um, ensuring that we're not reactive going forward? A lot of the traditional ways of looking at software development and, and securing the software stack had always been, well, perform the pen test and do a code review, but there's definitely a shift now where you need to embed a lot of those controls as part of a DevOps or CICD pipeline. And that's the next evolution of where we need to look at security and ensuring that we're, again, proactive rather than reactive in that approach. And I would say lastly, as you look at trusted software in your environment, I think a lot of organizations will have to start going down the path of zero trust and looking at the fact that uh, you're always in a breach state. And you can have to assume that a lot of these suppliers, such as the SolarWinds, are going to have access into your environment and to ensure that they have the minimum amount of access um, and that your network is segmented in a way that if they were to breach through that vendor, um, there's minimal uh, impact and blast radius of the, as a result of that breach. Although software supply chain risk is only one area of a CISO's responsibility, it sounds like they have a lot to think about and reflect on. And it's, of course, been great talking to you both about this today. And, and thank you for sharing your experiences and, of course, what has happened over the course of your careers and how the role has changed. I'm sure our listeners would have found it useful. And to you, our listeners, if you would like to find out more about how you can tackle the latest cybersecurity threats to your business, please visit pwc.co.uk forward slash cybersecurity. And don't forget to subscribe to receive future episodes of our podcast. See you next time.